Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi, it's Monday morning, and I'm going to take this opportunity to do an extra web. I was asked by uh, my friend Rabbi Obama, Rabbi Stephen Wall, who said he has a yard set of a grandfather coming up this week, end of the week. And if I would talk about someone who may possibly be related to him, the same name while, as I mentioned before, these names you can never tell. That's the Carbon Asano. And so uh, uh, so this podcast is being sponsored and dedicated to the memory of Rabbi Weil's grandfather, this Yisachar ben Shmuel Halevi Weil, Bernhard Weil, who I understand was a fee handler, that's a cattle dealer in Lower Franconia in Germany. And the person we're going to talk about today comes from there. And he told me that because of Hitler, he and his family escaped and settled 50 miles outside of Buffalo. They got lucky. Both in Germany and upstate New York, he provided for the Jewish community. He was a religious role model of integrity and dignity. And also been on a for his family and for many other survivors and refugees who are attempting to rebuild their lives in America. So, uh, this is uh, someone with what they call the Yekesha virtues. I'm serious. The uh, virtues. Which is therefore appropriate, even though it's not the yard site, this would be carbon design, but it doesn't matter. I can do what I want. And uh, I'm happy to do this in his memory. Uh, as I said, Rabbi Well asked me to speak about the carbon design, who is uh, a wild. I mentioned before Wild's name of a river in Germany. So a lot of people have named Wild. A couple weeks ago, not that long ago, I, did, I spoke about the uh, Mariwal, Rabbi Yakowal of the 15th century in Germany, one of the great, great Ashkenazic uh, postkim. And our hero today, who wrote the Carmen Asano, was a descendant of his, like seven or eight generations later. So here you really have a family over there. Here, we're ta- here I'm leaving Steinsels and all that and talking about something more traditional, Along the lines of many of the famous figures that I've spoken about in the last year. And somebody connected with one of my favorite centuries, the 18th century. Uh, is Rabbi Nassanel, Natano Weil. Who uh, lived in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Middle 1700s, actually. He went from 1687 to 1770. That's a, a piece of the 18th century. And uh, everyone has their own unique story. And so does the Carbon Sano. Uh, and so we're dealing with somebody who's real, as, like the family of Rabbi Stephen Wall, is from South Germany. Uh, Yekas, in that sense. Although I shouldn't use the word Yeki because that's usually associated with the 19th century and the, the uh, what should I say, westernization of the German Jews, even the Orthodox. Uh, here we're dealing with centuries earlier than that. In which the German, the Jews living in Germany were part of one big glob called Ashkenazic Jewry. The famous historian Jacob Katz used to write about Ashkenaz, which ran from France all the way to nearly Moscow. You know, it's all one real big thing. It's all Yiddish. They all spoke Yiddish, different dialects. They all thought the same way. They're all Ashkenaz, and they all daven more or less the same way. I mean, there's a couple of differences between the Yekushimenig and this Polishmenig and all that. 
but basically the same thing. So it's the world of our ancestors, uh, most of us listening to this. Now, uh, Rabbi Nassana Wild was born uh, <laughs> in a nothing place, a little village on the border between Germany and Switzerland. I don't know, these names don't mean anything to you. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, and he spent his life in um, what we call South Germany, South and West Germany. Germany is a big area, and there is a difference between the Germans in the southern part, I'm talking about the Jews, in the southern part and the and Jews in the northern part. They're more traditional types that connect with the southern part. And that's the area of Germany, and there was no country called Germany, it was called the Holy Roman Empire, which were a lot of different little medinas in there, and the Jews were constantly being kicked out of one place and another and all that sort of thing that I've spoken about many times in the past. Uh, the Jews were pretty much kicked out of 100% of North Germany by the time you get to the 1500s. And they only began to return there in the 16 and 1700s in small numbers for economic purposes. By contrast, in the south of Germany, there are areas, there are plenty of places where the Jews were wiped out, killed out, or kicked out in South Germany as well, plenty. But there are also places, like Rabbi Stephen Wall's family, Franconia and all that, if these names mean anything to you, Southern Germany, Bavaria, I guess you may have heard of, where the Jews never were kicked out. These are real German Jews. They just somehow or other hung on there a century after century. At times it was really tough, but that's who they were. So our hero is from that group. He was born in a tiny little village in 1687, but when he's five years old, his father is killed. Uh, I don't know the circumstances, but I can guess. There's a big war going on. Again, I've spoken about this in the past. I'm not giving any beginnings. You don't have to know all these sorts of things. But the War of the Grand Coalition that ended in the Peace of Nijmegen was raging in the 1690s. And there was a lot of invasions to French and the Austrians back and forth. And so don't be surprised if people get killed along the way. It was a Hefkeris. And so you have a little boy whose father clearly came from a distinguished Yechus, while means to come from the Mariwal. And since the 1700s, they're still very traditionalistic, so Yechus should be associated with Torah knowledge, scholarship. And you have a mother who now is a little boy, and she got raised a kid, and she has big plans for him, clearly. And she wants the boy to grow up to be a big rabbi, because it's the early 1700s, late 1600s, and these are ambitions of a Jewish mother of old. If possible. Now, you know and I know that Carbon Nassau was a big volcation. He, he had what it took to be a big guttle. But I'm just saying, the mother from early age had this in mind. And she took the kid. So for a couple of years, listen, it must have been hard. You lose your pronosa. Husband is killed. War going on. 1690s. It's a bummer. You know, I mean, I get that. And when he's 10 years old, she took the kid to the closest big Malcolm Torah in that area of the world, and that was Firth, near Nuremberg. There's a uh, very famous Jewish community, and uh, old, and a very important yeshiva that was located in Firth. This is, again, in the heart of Bavaria. And uh, she said, you know, take my kid into the, in the yeshiva. He was too young, they wouldn't do it. The yeshiva's like a chashiva yeshiva. The, uh, if you're interested at all, in the history of the yeshiva first, there's a three fat volumes by Rabbi Hamburger, all about that. 
Yeshiva Haroma. And so what do you do? So she goes to, so she doesn't give up. I mean, she's quite a lady. And she takes the kid who's only 10 years old. Then she slept some, slept some north. And uh, we're talking now, um, the late 1600s. Okay, so it's in between the wars to Prague. Right? Uh, first was a very important center of uh, Jewish scholarship. Prague was the number one city of Yiddishkeit at that time. Prague had the largest Jewish community physically, about 10,000 Jews, which was humongous. And they had multiple synagogues and multiple yeshivas. Multiple yeshivas in Prague. Which you really didn't have anywhere else. You know what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? Most communities were much smaller. And at the most, you had a yeshiva. You understand? Uh, there were only a few communities in which you had uh, multiple yeshivas. As you do today in large communities in America, Baltimore, where I live, is now getting lots of yeshivas. This guy's opening up, and that guy's opening up, and so forth. Besides Neri Throne. And uh, so she came to Prague, and she had relatives there. And to make a long story short, she found a relative who would raise the boy. Now, obviously, he must have been attractive. But I mean, not only physically, but I mean, he might have had a nice personality. Because why would somebody want to raise undertake it, the, the, the pain and neck to raise an orphan. Uh, I, it's a big mitzvah, but, you know, I get it. But you know what I mean. And uh, this th- this would be the father's brother. So anyway, uh, he lives now for a long time in Prague. So this is 1697. And for the next 10 years, something like that, from the time you're 10 years old to your teen years, you know what I mean? To your 15, 16, 17, something like that. He's living in Prague. Uh, here, let's put it this way. I don't know the exact details, but if he's 10 or 11, I'm sure the uncle taught him learning. And uh, he was a Balkish when he took to it. And then he got him in the yeshiva, probably 11, 12 years old, because that's when you could start in those days, the, uh, of a Godel Ador. The Godel Ador you never heard of. One of the most famous rabbis of all time that you never heard of. That's Rabbi Avram Breide. Now, you've heard of the Breide family. He's the ancestor of them. The Breide family. You know, Simcha, Zizel, Breide, and all that. But uh, here's the first guy. And Avram Breide was one of the big biggies of yesteryear, of the late 16, early 1700s. I, like I said, I know most people never heard the name. But take it from me, he was a very big person. And he had his own career. He was a classic guttel of the old school. I could do a, a, a talk on him. With Av Bezdin of the old school, in which you uh, preside over the community, the Bezdin system. You're the POSIC, as they say, on the one hand. And at the same time, as the old system used to be in Ashkenaz, he's also Rashiva. But the community pays, or is supposed to pay part, help run the Yeshiva. And Avram Brody was a renowned uh, Av Bezdin. And in addition to that, well, this is not so well known. He was an even more renowned charismatic teacher. No, he was a phenomenally successful Rashiva. He's the guy who was the big name before Abishas. You notice that Abishas came to Prague during his time and sort of like um, succeeded him, you might say. Both men were, just personality-wise, extremely charismatic and fantastic Rebbe's. Students were just drawn to him by the hundreds. And uh, that's just interesting, you know what I'm saying? And uh, 
if you know the little details, like you get the Simcha Asa book with the the covers are told Zachina, they're these uh, anonymous or whatever memoirs of guys who learned in the Prague Yeshiva. They're kind of interesting. People used to walk there. Uh, and somewhere under Ambrodin, you see he was a nice guy. He was one of these rabbis, what's the right word, that took personal concern with the lives of the students. And that's what it takes to uh, establish a Kesher. Because uh, otherwise you'd go into a college, you know, you just listen to a lecture. You want to have some kind of personal Kesher. He apparently excelled in this. And so our hero is therefore entering yeshiva, a big yeshiva by the standards of that time. I don't know how many, but I mean at least a hundred boys and maybe several hundred. That's it's it's hard for me to imagine that because of the logistics, but it seems that that was the case. Somebody had yeshiva several hundred boys. I mean five hundred. Uh and here's Rosh Yeshiva, and it's, it 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 goes with the Teva of the Rosh Yeshiva, of the Rav, that he would spot an orphan who has potential and be Makar of him. So he basically became like a surrogate father, which is a nice story. And if you want to understand who the Karben Asana is, he is a Talmud Mubik or a Talmud Mubik of Avram Brother. And uh, became very attached. The two became very uh, close. And here's somebody there for who's, who's learning 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. 17-year-old, you know, those years, was one of the most uh, accomplished mechanchim, uh, shall we say. And uh, again, in real tight, in the end, he marries Rashiba's uh, niece. Okay? Now, I'm sure he didn't have any money, but he had the yichus and he had the brains. Right? He's a while. He's from the Marie Wild. So he comes from the right background. I'm dealing here, as we often do when we talk about these guys, with the elites. It's a world of elitism. Uh, these guys didn't have money that I'm talking about. Alvin Breuder was a successful role, but he wasn't a millionaire. And the Karma Salon was a poor. There's an orphan. But the Yichas, they, they had the right Yichas. They're related to the right people. And um, he had, of course, uh, the brains. You know, so he knows he's going to voxize to be somebody big. And uh, it's just nice, by the way. I mean, let me put it this way. I'm telling a nice story over here of an orphan boy and, you know, it's tough. A kid need me to tell you. Lose a father five years old is a bummer. Uh, especially in those days. And uh, he found somebody that would that, that would take him on. Now, Alvin Breuder was one of the classic, as I said before, gedolim of the old school, of the old Ashkenaz, early Monero. And like them, he was a Abbez and a Rosh Yeshiva, and he had his big fights. All these big famous rabbis are famous for their controversial halachic positions on one issue or another. Especially Prague is chock full of these stories where the rabbis all fell apart and tore each other bits because they had an argument over some halachic issue. You know, remember the one with the with the uh, the, the chicken without the heart and all that sort of thing, which it took place exactly this time. So in the case of Alvin Breuder, he got involved in a big fight with the other rabbis in the town over, um, I forget what it was. It was a, a marriage case. They wouldn't let a girl be married. I think there was a question whether she was an islandist or not. Some medical zach, okay? I think she was underdeveloped. So, something along those lines. And, you know, they made a wedding for her, and he protested against it. And the Chacham Tzvi weighed in from Hamburg. You know, it's one of those classic big fights of yesteryear. And by the time it's all over, Avram Brady leaves the city. 
He moved from Prague and became the chief rabbi in Metz, on the other side of the Germany. So our hero, the, the young Nisano Wild, goes with him. So here's a boy. Mm, let me figure this out. He'd be 19, 20 years old, Be'erich. Uh, and he leaves Prague, where he was doing great in yeshiva. He was connected to the right guy. And he follows the Rebbe to Metz. Don't worry, when Abram went to Metz, he had the same thing. It's a big community. They gave him a big salary. He had a big yeshiva. And so basically, here's a guy who's like, more or less the right-hand man to the Rosh Yeshiva. Does that make sense? The right-hand man to the Rav. And because they were related, because he married Denise and all the rest of it, no, he married his wife's sister, his daughter. Is that what it was? Yeah. So, uh, he's part of the royal family, if you follow what I mean, of the, of the Rav. And he said later on, he said, I learned everything from him, including the Hanhagas or Abonas and the Rosh Hashiva business. In other words, he learned from a master the two skills needed to be a successful Gadol in the old days, and that is Rashiva and, and, and Rav, which are not the same. Today they're often divided, aren't they? Um, but in those days you were supposed to, if possible, try to me uh, meld them together. Now, Ambroida uh, eventually went, after he was in Metz for a couple of years, to uh, Frankfurt. Um, for the whole reason, the rabbi there was accused of starting a fire. It's gone to business. And died there. So, um, our hero followed him. See, so really, you know, a, a young guy who's married. and already has kids, I guess. And, you know, wherever the Rebbe goes, that's where you go. And uh, the result is that um, he really had a role model. Now, Ambrada died in, six, in 1717. So, notice until he's 30 years old. So, our hero lived from 1687 to 1760, 1770. So, he lived to be uh, 80, I guess, right? Yeah. Over 80. So, the first 30 years of his life was in the context I just described. As an acolyte, a disciple of a God to whom he had the zechus to have really tight uh, relationship. But then the guy died. So now what do you do? So um, I told you before, money he did not have. Yichas he had. And by now, learning he has. So he goes back to Prague. And uh, he settled down there. Because he was related, at least, you know, to some people, so he got a job as a Dayan. Um, now in Prague, Dayan, a dime a dozen. What do I mean? Prague was a very important city, maybe the most important Jewish community. And Prague is famous for having a very elaborate basement system. The upper courts and lower courts and middle courts, the Choshimishma courts and Ebenezer courts. It's fascinating, but you know, I could give a talk to you. It's just fascinating. Uh, Simcha Asaf, my favorite historian, wrote a book called Bate Din Vesid Rehem or something like that uh, in the early 1900s. And uh, you see, Prague had a petty ante court. If you and I are arguing, <laughs> this is so Jewish, you and I are arguing over 25, 50 bucks. You know, I believe me, in the rabbi business, I've seen people go crazy and declare one each other for a hundred bucks, for seventy-five bucks. Uh, they had penny ante courts for that stuff, and then they had separate basins for uh, serious money. You know, you were arguing over twenty grand, fifty grand, hundred grand, something like that. They had basins for um, I don't know, Evan Ezra stuff. You know, it was a pretty elaborate system. 
that Mar they had a Supreme Court called the Marishavas. He was one of the Dayans. Then that's where he spent, let's see now, 1770, next 25 years of his life or so. Almost, oh, next, almost 30 years of his life. So here's our hero from the age of 30 to the age of almost 60. You know, the acre years of the, of the life. He lives in Prague. It wasn't particularly known, but he, um, in addition, he got paid a small salary. He lived in poverty for being a die-in there. But he also opened the yeshiva because that's, I told you, Prague always had multiple yeshivas. And yeshiva is based on who you can attract. And he clearly had, like he learned from the, 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 his role model, the charismatic approach. Plus, listen, the guy was an orphan growing up. I mean, I think this probably gave him, what's the right word, you know, an insight into the human sufferings. Yeah, you, know, you know what I mean? In other words, he didn't live in the lap of luxury. And so that's the type of person you could establish a Kesha with because he's been in the hard times himself. Uh, I'm sure any kid that came learning these yeshiva who himself was orphaned, you know, they would already find a common life, a Safa Meshutefes. He had that And they said, listen... I read a thing in German where he said he had thousands of students. It's hard, thousands. It's hard to believe that, but, you know, that's what they say. Uh, even if he had dozens of students, hundreds of students, he clearly was a very successful Rebbe. So, so far, so good, meaning big deal. Guys like him, dime a dozen. There are lots all over Europe. There are plenty of people who are big time in the Chachamim and had yeshivas and were charismatic teachers to one degree or another, you know. Uh, although, in Prague, it was a Let's put it this way. You're up against a lot of competition. I was in Prague last year. It was uh, one of my trips. Uh, you know, Dishol had a yeshiva running it, and next door was a building that had a yeshiva running it, and a block away was a yeshiva running it. And so, you know, there was, it is a competition. You have that in New York City, don't you, in Brooklyn, places like that. And so you got to be good, because all the people there. And by the way, when he is running a yeshiva with great success, so is the Anderson Abishitz you know, like two blocks away, who had a phenomenal uh, charisma. Right? Mamish those years, from 1717 to almost 1747. Almost. That's a long time. And um, therefore, we're talking about somebody who obviously is a godo, meaning he put in years and years of this learning stuff. And, you know, he had a system. He learned eight, eight chapters of Mishnahis every day, and, and this, come on, you know... No, he was obviously a winner. Now, uh, during this time, he got the idea to write the Carbon Nassano, which is his commentary on the Rush, and that's what made him famous. If I was talking about Nassano a while, you never would have heard of him. If I say Carbon Nassano, many have heard of him. Right? His commentary on the Rush. Now, why in the Rush? This is very interesting. I'll tell you what I understand. No, this is my opinion. Uh, used to be very common... Long ago, I mean, how should I put this? Here you are, a, a Magid Shear in the year 1700 or 1720. There's no Chaim Brisker, <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't exist. What, what is the alumnus? What, what do you do? Um, one way, and second of all, depends what age you're dealing with, students. One old-fashioned, old-school way of learning is Gemarashi Rush, Skiptotosis. And the reason is obvious. The rush is written in a more uh, fuller style. It's easier to read. 
and pretty much the same kashas and same Jerusalem a lot of times. And it's a Dover Yiduah. It's a very much an old school thing in Lithuania and elsewhere. They teach the Talmudim, Gemara Rashi Rush. Okay? Um, you get the halacha out of it, you, you know, the, the same Hezbers. Everybody knows that Tosis is written like punctual style, you know, a point here, a point there, in Tomer, Yishlomer. When you have an easy Tosis, you have an easy Tosis, but when you know it's not so simple. The Rush, by contrast, wrote his book, the Sefer Rush, as a book, meaning as a, a treatise to explain the whole Gemara. So it's, it's so to speak, written better. I'm talking from a literary perspective. Written better. The Tosis was not written by anybody as a book. Tosis are written as notes. And the Tosis we have are several recensions into it. You know, first were the Tosis of the Re, and then it was redone by the Rajbal, then it was redone by the students of the Rajbal, and the Tosis Toch. You know, that whole evolution. The Rush is a different story. It's much more glut. On the other hand, not everything's Pasha and Rush, just like it's not Pasha in the Tosis. And so, he got his idea to write, if I can use this term, like a, a Rashi or a, a commentary on the Rush. And um, that way, for the average yeshiva student of that time, of that milieu, you know, the Gemara Rashi and the Rush, and if you have a question on the Rush, you, you, you look at the Carbon Sano. Now, here you have the fruits of the labor of a guy who is a fantastic uh, magashir. In other words, he's not sitting there, Stamazai writing, you know, in a Garrett scholar, isolated by himself. He's learning, no, I'll just give you an example. Let's say, what is there, Dafiomi now in Erevin? I don't know, I'm just making this up. So he's going to learn Erevin with them. They're going to learn more Rashi in the Rush. You know, when he when he says over to Shir, they're going to ask him questions. He'll say a svarim. They'll knock it down. They'll be malabin, as we call. Those from the discussions, he'll get a clarity because he knew he knew how to teach because he was taught by a master. And the result is you have a good clarkite on the rush. Sometimes in the carbon solid, there are issues with the rush's gear. So you know things like that. They they're the product of the best style of learning, which is the classroom style, when you're challenged by intelligent students. It forces you to refine, you know, your 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 uh, words. And uh, anyway, this became his big project. This put him on the map. Uh, now he didn't publish it for many many years. And the reason to me is simple. You know, this this year we're learning. I don't know. You know, uh, uh, Shabbos. Well, in five years we're going to come back to Shabbos. So I'm going to get it better next time. Before you publish it, you want to redo it. Uh, as many times as, as as you're able to 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 perfect it, and that's what he did. Now he never did publish in those years, uh, as I said before. But he but he, he so therefore he had an interesting life. We know that he suffered from poverty. He had to borrow money. It was embarrassing and all the rest of it. So that part was bad. And he had a family, he had kids, and so forth. So he had expenses. On the other hand, he was doing what he liked to do, right? If you're into learning, Prague's the place to be because thousands of students from all over the world, thousands, I say, came to Prague, not necessarily to one single yeshiva. I could be wrong about that. They say Abish has had thousands. Like I said before, it's always hard for me to understand that from from historical perspective. But it's interesting that you constantly hear the word thousands there. Do you want to say, consider well, I don't know where you live. 
Or let's say you live in a community that's not that big, 10,000 people. If you have thousands of guys from elsewhere, you, you see them all over the place. They, like, dominate the landscape, don't they? Of course, it means every landlady has uh, tenants, you know, Shiba guys. But plenty of Shiba boys slept on the floor, had no shoes. It's the old school. You know, that was the era. And uh, plenty of them are rich and they can afford it. So this is the world in which he functioned in his 30s, in his 40s, and his 50s. But all good things must come to an end. And in the 1740s, there broke out one of those wars that I've spoken about from time to time, which is part of the 18th century. Which is interesting to me, but probably not to you. It's called the War of the Austrian Succession which had to do with Maria Theresa versus Frederick the Great, and Frederick was allied with the French, and therefore the French invaded Bohemia and captured Prague, and later the Prussians under Frederick the Great invaded Bohemia and captured Prague. Prague was a city that belonged to the Austrians, and eventually the Austrians got it back. So, what was after to do with anything? The Jews, when the city was taken over by um, the French, you got to kiss up to the French. You got to do business with them. When taken by the Prussians, you got to kiss up to them. In other words, I'm a storekeeper. Here comes the Prussian army. What the heck am I supposed to do? You know? But the Austrian Empress Maria Theresa said, Oh, you should be loyal to me. You should have nothing to do with them. You should starve to death. Show your loyalty to me. That's the attitude she took. And she was anti Semitic. And make a long story short, the city was eventually reconquered by the Austrians. And uh, the Austrian army, especially the Hungarians in the Austrian army, these are what they call the Pandors. These are like the Hungarian irregulars, like commandos or something like that. It's not the right word. But these were barbarian troops who were allowed to behave barbarian style. Then they looted the Jewish quarter and they beat him up and all kind of stuff like that. I forget the exact details. But he and his family had a, a, a very bad a scrape over there. And uh, this all happened in 1744 if you care about the dates. And uh, by the end of the year, the Empress Maria Theresa, who had recaptured Prague, uh, she banished all the Jews. It's like the expulsion of Jews from Spain. It's probably the last great one of Europe. The formal expulsion of the old days. She's a real Amzeris, that, 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 that's what it was. So the Jews had to leave Prague and leave Vienna. Uh, I'm sorry, Prague and Bohemia. It's the middle of winter, by the way, it's December. A lot of people died on the way. A lot of privation and suffering. And um, a year or two later, there was pressure from England and Holland and the local economy. The Gaim said we can't handle without the Jews. We need them as part of the economy. And so, she eventually rescinded and let the Jews come back if they pay her money. It's a long story. That's how Prague went on to continue to be a Jewish community, like the Nota Biuda, who was in the following decade. But... Uh, the original community crashed under Maria Theresa in the 1740s. And so, here you are. You've lived here 30 years. You're a Dayan. You have a yeshiva. All of a sudden, everything's over. All the Jews leave the houses. Leave the whole community. 10,000 people. Hit the road, Jack. Um, think about that. And in the winter. And uh, you're not rich. Uh, what a bummer. And so, like I say, everybody had scattered in whatever directions they did. People hung around the peasant ha villages in the winter. There's a whole long arichas to it. I don't want to go into all It'll take me too long to describe all this. It's a very well-known uh, incident. By the way, Jonas and Apsius got out of this when the French occupied the city the year before 
two years earlier, before, the, before this happened, uh, he was able to get a job as a rabbi in Metz, and he was able to leave the city, which left a lot of people angry, like, you know, you escaped the worst blow. But he undertook the understanding when he was in Metz to try to raise money for the, uh, if you look in the uh, Yaris Tavash, one of the speeches is, I'm trying to raise money to help the people are just uh, expelled. Now, in the particular case of the Carmen Sanal, uh, he got lucky. Let's put it this way. They hit him over the head with a gold brick. Well, I mean, he got out of Prague, can't go back. Um, he got, so what do you do? You have a family. The guy's uh, close to 60. What do you do? And um, that's a good question. But he already had a big reputation. I think this is my own personal opinion that since he had a lot of Talmudim they taught over the years, they must have spread his word around. And uh, he was from South Germany. And so he did get a job somewhere, what's called Schwarzwald in the Black Forest, as a as a district as a rabbi of a bunch of small little tailors. Lisa was a Parnosa. So basically he landed on his feet. And for the rest of his life, uh from 1745 till he died in 1770 that's 25 years so from the time you're 60 to the time you're 80 or 80 something or 83 um, his financial situation was actually better you understand what I'm saying that was in his case the expulsion enabled him to leave Prague where he had a, he had a great life and he liked the learning all the rest of it but financially he was very very poor and he ended up getting the job is now based in, in situations where the, where the Parnassus was better. And uh, they moved far away from Prague to South Germany, near the Rhine, and um, but on the German side. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. Now, for a couple of years, he was a rabbi in this these small little Kahilas. And then, the Imamus got a break because... Uh, when in 1750, so how old would he be? He'd be 63 years old. Not so young. In 1750, he was offered to be the Rav in a new community called Karlsruhe, which is on the Rhine, in, in what they call Baden. Uh, this is the part of Germany facing opposite France, opposite Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, the whole area is called Baden. There's Baden-Durlach, Baden-This, Baden-That. Uh, and eventually all came united in something called the Grand Duchy of Baden. The most interesting is, is a place called Baden-Baden. Baden is, has a, for some reason, has, the name is repeated. There's Baden this, there's Baden that, there's also Baden-Baden. I remember when I was a kid, my father, who was Lithuanian, they considered this a joke. This is an old Lithuanian joke. A Jew's on the train, a Lithuanian Jew, he meets a, yak, a, a, a German, not necessarily Jewish. He said, where are you from? Baden-Baden. And the chairman said, where are you from? Kovna, Kovna. You know, <laughs> they thought it was like, you know, like stuttering or something like that. There really is a place like that. So, Karlsruhe is an important city, but it was brand new. The city had just been built a few years before. Um, the Grand Duke of that particular area, the elector, uh, just had a dream. And he decided, I'm serious. And he decided to build a city there. So it's a beautiful little spot. As uh, by the river, and from day one they allowed some Jews in. They said you have to have a certain amount of money. It, basically, to use modern uh, terminology, 
uh, they'd say like this. Mm, anybody can move here if you're Jewish, provided you have 200K in the bank. You know, like that. You know what I'm saying? That, that's a, they don't want poor Jews. But if you have 200K in the bank, probably you're going to do business over here. And that founded the Jewish community in Karlsruhe. So it's one of the really late founded cities and therefore Jewish communities. And by the standards of the 18th century in Germany, and it's all relative, it was one of the more tolerant places for the Jews. Um, and he was offered a position because he obviously, as I said before, must have a reputation spread by his students. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. So he became the Av Basin in Karlsruhe on the river. And um, what do you call it? This, this, you know, he became known as the, the Rob there. So uh, here you have somebody who is able to spend his 60s and 70s uh, in much more pleasant circumstances. As I said before, by the standards of Germany, which was always very anti-Semitic, uh, it was more uh, tolerant. Uh, the truth is that there was a grand duke who ruled there for a very long time. People don't notice. He had like the longest reign perhaps in European history. Uh, Charles Frederick, Carl Friedrich, the elector. I think he was uh, the duke there, the ruler for 70 years. Really. You know, 70, the whole 18th century. And, uh, you know, he got along with him. And uh, that, that, this is where he spent the rest of his life, and that's where he published the Carbon Sama. Okay? Uh, matter of fact, when you look at it, you see Carl Friedrich on the front. I mean, Carl's room. So let's put it this way. The Carbon Sama um, uh, had the last years of his life, therefore, were relatively good. Uh, because it was a rather quiet place. Even though it wasn't far from the battlefront. But things worked out that, as far as I know, wasn't invaded. And um, there was a small Jewish community. Mm, he actually had authority over some of the little places outside of Karlsruhe. And by the stand, and you're not that far away from other Jewish communities in in, uh, in South Germany. Well, I don't know about that. It's 160 miles from Perth. Not so pushing. But to, to I'm trying to convey the idea. Imagine if I told you, here's a guy in um, I don't know. Mm, uh, uh, just what's an obscure town in New York? You know, uh, Tawanda near uh, Buffalo. So here's a guy, uh, a Robin Tawanda, who's a god of the It wasn't a large community, but the rabbi was very chashiv. And as the Carbon Sala got published, it took off. In other words, it's not surprising, considering the background that he put in all those years in Prague teaching. And he was able to have a little yeshiva, I believe, in um, Karlsruhe. And uh, that's where he spent the rest of his life. And so he was able to publish, you know, most of the Carbonisano. Some of it came afterwards. Uh, if I remember correctly, he used to dictate it to his sons. And, you know, this son published here. That son published it there. And, uh, and that made his reputation. So here you have two people I just described. The Carbonisano is Rabbi Avram Broyden. To be perfectly honest, Avram Brady was bigger than the Weltgang. But in Torah history, sometimes your name is made or not made by a book you publish if it takes off. Uh, there are many Sfarm out there. Asos Sfarm in case, as King Solomon says. And some are better and some are worse. And that's a matter of a possibly opinion, debate. 
But as we all know, uh, there are many good swarms that, that just don't take off. Uh, and then some people get lucky, and they'll publish something that takes off. In the case of our hero, these come to you in the rush, took off. People found it very useful, still do. And eventually, as you know, it got published in the regular Gemara, and it is to Adayamazeh. So if you get any kind of regular Gemara, you're looking back in the rush, underneath the Bita Karvanisano. So he became, he, uh, what should I say? If I told you there was a famous rabbi in the Sano well in Karlsruhe, you say, who's that? If I say the carbon in the Sano is buried in Karlsruhe, oh, the carbon in Even you don't know exactly what I mean. That's such a famous safer. And everybody, she was, I've seen it one time or another. When I say safer, you know, the commentary at the bottom of, uh, of the rush, you know. And uh, so this made his international reputation. It's interesting. Now, uh, when he died, his son was elected in his place. So that means you have a father and son being rabbi of this community from 1750 to 1805. It's a long time. 55 years. Father and son. And they had kids that remained in the city as well as many who moved elsewhere because it's an elite family. And Carlsruhe, uh, therefore, became this little nothing town became a uh, not unknown uh, from community, you know, a strong Jewish community. Although, it's just interesting to me that in the 1800s, um, it was a big, uh, that's one of the places the reform movement started. But because of the legacy left by the Carbonisano and by his son, um, so there was also a very strong from element there. And that's one of the places that made it, I remember this, it's one of the places that made a Hersheyan community in the 19th century. An Austrian Gemeinde, you know, where they made a separate Kehela because uh, they didn't like the reform that was going on there. Uh, so, Karlsruhe was a place that had an active, you know, uh, 19th century, early 20th century Orthodox community, of course, until Hitler. And they look back to the legacy of the because I repeat, the city was only founded around 1720 or 1710, something like that. It's not an old city at all. Um, and, you know, sometimes certain famous rabbis had the effect, because he was a saintly person. You see, listen, the guy I'm describing is, <laughs> what what errors are there? You know, you're learning 24-7. You know, the old school. You know what I mean? Old school. There's an Abbas in it. There's a Russian sheep of some sort or another. What, what time do you have to go and do other things? And I'm not aware of any major controversies he got involved in um, in the 18th century. He was, you know, a leading rabbi of that time in South Germany. Everybody heard of him. But, uh, you know, a saintly personality. And uh, used to get up two in the morning. But, I mean, that was standard. I'm saying, you think I'm making a joke. That was a standard. If you were big uh, gone from the old days, you got up two or three in the morning, of course, and you know, that's when you your learning. And uh, as I said before, as a result, he was uh, able to um, get this big reputation and have a hashpah because he was a, a saint. Now, um, I just now looking online, as I'm talking, and I see that his kever is still there and that uh, it's one of the places... And is uh, that, you know, uh, I haven't been in Germany, but I have students and others have been in Germany. 
and Israel is popular for Frumis to go to Germany, to go to the Kavarim. And, you know, Baal Shem and all the rest of it. Not far away in Karlsruhe, the lower Rhine, or the upper Rhine, actually. Uh, people go there. Why wouldn't it go to Karlsruhe? Who the heck even heard of it? Oh, the Carbon and Salisbury there. Uh, and, yeah, I see the, the, the tombstone is still nice and all the rest of it. So, um, we therefore have somebody who lived just before modernity hit and was able to run things in the old school way. Uh, by the time you came to two, three generations later, uh, modernity hit Germany. The successor, the guy who was the rabbi in Karlsruhe after uh, after the Carmen Salas son, he had a son with a funny name, Yadidia Tiawao, or the famous Haggadah, whatever. Uh, and by the way, because the Carmen Salas was known for the safer Carmen Salas, so in the last 20, 30 years, I don't have it, but I've seen, they have published Chidushi Carmen Salas Law Shas, you know, they found manuscripts, and Shals and Shubas Carmen Salas, you know, but it, you know how it works. Because he wrote the Carbon Asano, therefore they're interested in publishing his, his other works. Otherwise, he wouldn't. Uh, so, the one who was rabbi after him was the son of the Shagasari. It's very interesting. Son of Shagasari. And he had a yeshiva there too. Uh, he was in time with the reform. And he was helped by the legacy that, you know, the Carbon Asano and his son left there of a Yiddishkeit and uh, a Frumkeit. And if I remember correctly, uh, I think that uh, Bernays, Chacham Bernays, studied there with him. And that, of course, is the teacher of Sanser Eiffel Hirsch. And uh, also of Hildesheimer to some degree. And so it's funny how these things work out. Carbonisano, and then Astor Leon, as they call him, the son of the Shagasari, and then this is taken to the beginnings of modern orthodoxy. The German stuff. So it's uh, just interesting how these how these things play out. Um, but uh, in other words, it's a classic case of school of yesteryear. You see what a good fortune he had um, being being stricken with the orphan to uh, have formed this Kesher with this uh, tremendously charismatic uh, Godot and uh, to take the best from him and use it to build on his own. Uh, and so uh, with that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.